I wish to deal with the history of the papacy and to give some insight in contrast to the true believers that have existed right through since biblical times to the present day. I begin in this presentation to give an overview of the history from the very beginning of the church at Rome up to the Reformation and Counter-Reformation times. The stark contrast between the elders who met with the people of God in early Rome in the house churches to present-day Roman Catholic Church that is a vast political an ecclesiastical institution is utterly unbelievable. It could not be more stark. The early men who were Bible believers, holding to the gospel, holding to the four uh, copies of the life of Christ and the written gospels, the epistles of Paul, Peter, John, and writings of the New Testament, preaching the gospel. These men were renowned for their faith. And it is an utter, an utter stark uh, reality to see how this is in utter disparity with the papal system and its hierarchy and rituals and civil power. It is something that we have to be really cognizant of. The Apostle Paul quite clearly and emphatically praised the faith of the early believers in Rome. He says in Romans chapter 1, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. For your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. Such commendations for churches is quite rare in the letters of Paul. The faith of the churches in Rome continued for 250 years after this under some adverse conditions and extreme persecutions. The most famous was Nero in the year 64. Totally unimaginable to these pastors and the believers in these churches in Rome would be the idea that there was a holy Roman pontiff and that God's grace came through rituals and that the wonderful, wonderful Bible believer Mary would be called the All-Holy One. Totally unimaginable to them would be a hierarchy from lay person to priest, from priest to bishop, from bishop to cardinals, from cardinals to pope. They held to the truth what Christ said in Matthew's Gospel, One is your Lord and Master, and ye are all brethren. But that faith continued, and it was on the power of the 
gospel message and the preaching of the gospel message that it, it increased vastly and in numbers in the city of Rome. The spread of Christianity was dynamic as the persecutions continued. The most horrific being that under the Emperor Diocletian. The persecution under Diocletian and the other emperors did not thwart the gospel. The gospel was faithfully proclaimed and the pastors and the congregations remained faithful. It all changed in the year 313. At that time there were two emperors, one in the east and one in the west, the most famous Constantine in the western part of the emperor, but together with Lucinius in the east, made an edict of Milan in which paganism was again recognized by the emperors at the time. The empire power recognized paganism and Christianity. And that was the beginning of the cancer, as it were, coming into the Church of the Living God, where it is recognized together with paganism by the emperor, emperor and his power. His power was mighty as he took control of the whole empire, having beaten Lucinius, and now was the one empire united under Constantine, as he took this power to himself, he thought to set up the Christian church in the same way that the empire was set up. The empire was set up to be governed under four main jurisdictions with vice prelates under the power the central power. And so, Constantine set up the same for the Christian church. And the pastors, one of which was to be supreme as bishop, was to dictate to the lower clergy, the beginning of a hierarchy. And so we have this establishment of a hierarchy and it is really worked out by the Emperor Constantine. Really sadly, the history is that because cities had great fame, great wealth and power, usually the elder, who was now being called the bishop, was recognized to have extra power if his city was extra powerful. And Rome was the queen of cities, the most wealthy and powerful city on earth. And therefore the bishop of Rome soon began to look upon himself as the king of bishops. And it's really sad to see other bishops beginning to bow to his usurping of authority trying to bring it to himself. And that is coming into the 4th century. In the same 4th century, now going into the 5th century, we have 
likewise in the churches, the gospel has been watered down and in its place, rituals come in. The hierarchy is more firmly established in what becomes the clergy laity, the vision of the people. And we have a a church system in which we have mostly ritualism and a missing element that is the gospel. They're coming into the 5th century. Even with the famous Augustine who died in 410, there's a lot of ritualism and insistence on it with the many of the present day facets of Romanism already being found. While he fought for grace against Pelagius, still it was an internal righteousness that he was looking to and not the imputed righteousness that is so clearly in the Bible. So even the famous Augustine was as as if it were crippled because of the way the church had become in his day. By the time of 440 and the famous Leo I, Bishop of Rome, we find that he is making decrees to present himself as the sovereign over Western Christianity. A huge turning point was when Constantine moved his seat of power from the city of Rome to Constantinople. It was no longer a contention now between the four patriarchs, but now the contention who was the greatest church became a contention between Constantinople and the city of Rome. And the course of history went on so that in the late 4th, uh, 5th century coming into the 6th, we had the invasions from the north coming into what was the Western Empire to take them on in battle and to try and override the, the, the empire with their form of life. But it was really sad when you see the machinations of the Bishop of Rome and those who are now in league with him in what had been Bible-believing churches because they set out to convert these barbarians and were quite successful. The first of which was Clovis, the king of the Franks. He submitted to Roman Catholicism. He and his people, after he had defeated the Alemanni and vowed that if he was successful in that battle that he would enter the Roman Catholic Church system and be baptized, and that happened in 496. Following him, we have other barbarians becoming Roman Catholics, and that is the Burgundians of southern Gaul, the Visigoths of Spain, the Suevi of Portugal, and the Anglo-Saxons of Britain, all join with their people, their leaders and people, in what was to become Roman Catholicism. Then the emperor in the east, 
make the famous decree when we had Virgilius as Bishop of Rome in 538 that he was the Pontifex Maximus recognizing the Bishop of Rome as the supreme pontiff of all churches. This was more emphatically done in 606 by Phocas, that's P-H-O-C-A-S, the Emperor Phocas, where he recognized the Pope and his office as the ruler of Christendom. And so the title Pope begins to fit the Bishop of Rome from that time, 606. It was not, however, until the 8th century that we have a dynamic increase in the power and prestige of the Church of Rome. And it began with a most fraudulent document, one of the greatest forgeries ever made on this earth. It was the nation of Constantine. The Church of Rome produced this document saying that it was an authentic legal document that was given way back when we had the Emperor Constantine and the Bishop of Rome, Sylvester, in 335. And Constantine was purported to have handed over his power and authority to the Bishop of Rome. I will read the exact words of this purported document, the forgery of the donation of Constantine. Quotation, we attribute to the see of Peter all the dignity, all the glory, all the authority of the imperial power. Furthermore, we give to Sylvester and to his successors our palace of the Latran, which is incontestably the finest palace on the earth. We give to him our crown, our mitre, our diadem, and all our imperial vestments. We transfer to him the imperial dignity. We bestow on the holy pontiff in free gift the city of Rome and all the western cities. We cede to him. We divest ourselves of our authority over those provinces. We withdraw from Rome, transferring the seat of our empire to Byzantium, inasmuch as it is not proper for an earthly emperor to preserve the least authority where God hath established the head of his religion. End of quotation from this notoriously fraudulent document. Now, this document was used for many centuries afterwards. Constantine was made to speak the Latin of the, of the, Constantine speaks the Latin of the 8th century and not of the 4th century, which was quite different. And he calls the Bishop of Rome Prince of Apostles, Vicar of Christ, and he gives to him his power. It is amazing how this document was used to bring, to heal the different bishops with the clergy underneath them in different parts of the empire. And it was only discovered as a forgery, as a cheat, 
when the Reformation began in the 16th century. Now, that was in the 8th century that this document was written, possibly in the year 754. It was also in the 8th century that the Arian kings of Lombardy began progressing through Italy and looked like they were coming to attack Rome itself. Now, at the same time, the Muslims have overrun Africa and conquered some of Spain and are endangering Rome. So Rome is in a precarious position of being attacked possibly by the Aryan kings of Lombardy and the Muslims. So Pope Stephen II looks to France, that was the first of those uh, pagan barbarian nations to become Roman Catholic for help. And he calls on the famous Pepin the Short. Pepin was mayor of the palace and trying to become king by intrigue. And um, he needed recognition as king and the Pope needed to be done with the fear of the Muslims and the Arians. And so he called on the Pope. Uh, the Pope calls on the king, Pepin the Short, to come and relieve the problem. He crosses the Alps and defeats the Lombards and then hands over to the Pope as temporal power cities that he had defeated. The Pope begins to have civil power under his authority. Now, Pepin's donation to the Pope became far more consolidated under his most famous son, Charlemagne. Charlemagne was now the master of nearly all the Romano-Germanic nations. And he was again called on, like his father, by a new pope in Rome to come again because the Arians were again attacking. He defeated them and handed over even more cities to the pope. Leo III, and then the famous date in, in history, 800, where the Pope kneels on Christmas Eve at the feet of Pope Leo III to be crowned as the emperor, the Christian empire was the, what the Holy Roman Empire was now being established. It is most sad to see this recognition of the Pope in civil matters that he was one who could crown could crown an emperor to give him his authority. In 865 Pope Nicholas drew from the forgery of the donation of Constantine to bring many under the authority of Rome. And then we have two most famous centuries in the Roman Catholic Church where there is debauchery, immorality, and wicked living going on in the city of Rome with those who call themselves Bishop of Rome and Vicar of Christ. We had the infamous women of history, Theodora and Morosia, for many years governed the papal throne with their lovers and sometimes even their illegitimate sons to sit on the so-called chair of Peter. 
for those two centuries of debauchery, the kings and, and the princes of Italy used the papacy and the papacy used them. Most notorious centuries of immorality. But it was a huge turning point in the year 1073 with a famous man like the present Ratzinger who was in papal control and authority before he was elected Pope at the present day and possibly will always be called Ratzinger instead of Benedict XVI. Hildebrand, the famous Hildebrand, had a lot of power before he was elected Pope and became Gregory VII. But he saw to it the lusts of the mind, which were much worse than the lusts of the flesh. He brought in a rigorous discipline. He even told the pastors that they were not to be married. He was going to stamp out immorality and not even allow pastors to be married because he wanted control. The first one to begin to introduce in a very serious way the laws of celibacy. And he saw that in his vision or ambition that the rule of God was none less than the rule of the Roman pontiff. And it is most sad to see that while he did not achieve that much himself in the 200 years after him, by trickery, arms, crusades, and anatomas and curses put on churches, that edicts, that they were brought under the control. And so much of the goal of Hildebrand was achieved in the 200 years after him. So 200 years before Hildebrand was years of utter immorality. And 200 years after him is years of machinations and civil control and bringing churches and princes and kings under their dominion. And that is a pivotal character in papal history. The most famous two bishops of Rome, popes that took the shoes of Hildebrand were Pope Innocent III, who died in 1216, and Boniface the who died in 303, 1303. They put the final touches to what Hildebrand desired. Innocent I was the first to proclaim a crusade against the wonderful believers called the Albigenses, particularly in France. Remarkable people with remarkable culture and Christianity. He called a war against them, which is the beginning of the Inquisition, which had incredible cruelty. Whole villages were indiscriminately butchered and thousands were burnt alive with most horrendous torture. And not only has Rome ruined, you know, the whole uh, history of the Albigenses and wiped them out in the famous city of Albi, but they have in their history books tarnished the very beliefs of these believers, the Albigenses. The successor sometime later to the papal throne, Boniface, 
was renowned as being stubborn, ambitious, intelligent, unscrupulous, and immoral. He literally taught that the Pope was the vicar of Christ in every way, civilly and in spiritual matters. He had one of the most famous decrees made in the history of the Catholic Church. It's called Unum Sanctum. It is quite interesting that Ratzinger, when he was Cardinal Ratzinger, wrote a famous document in the year 2000 under the authority of the last Pope. And in one of the footnotes, he made reference to this Unum Sanctum by Boniface, the eighth, I want to read one of the most famous quotations from that document. We declare, say, define, and proclaim to every human creature that they, by necessity for salvation, are entirely subject to the Roman pontiff. Seventy-five popes from this time onward, from Innocent III to Pope Pius VII, approved of torture, murder, burning at the stake, confiscation of property of believers in most horrific centuries that went to more than 600 centuries, 605 years of brutal inquisition. These are years of notorious crime done in the name of Christ as the vicar of Christ and the very implements of torture and how they were to be applied, the details of how torture was to be invented and then applied to believers and some others right across Europe was written by the Pope himself. The famous Innocent IV did this in 1252 and she was fulfilling the text of scripture drunken with the blood of saints and the martyrs of Jesus the 600 years were horrific years where it was mostly by believers were mutilated tortured and burnt at the stake reputable historians give the figures of those who were tortured and burnt at the stake in the tens of millions, some historians going up to even 50 million. It is frightening to read these accounts. And I'd like, just as we are seeing the horrors of Rome, to take a look at the Bible-believing world at the same time. From the 4th century, the 5th century, the 6th century, the 7th century, the 8th century, the 9th, the 10th, the 11th and 12th. We have the Vaudois, the famous believers who had biblical faith and held to it strongly in northern Italy and southern France. And they evangelized, kept their crops and families in biblical ways, kept to the received text that was given as distinct from the Alexandrian text and were true to the scriptures and very conscious of the scripture meaning of Second Thessalonians 2 and Revelation 17 and 18. 
tremendous pipe of leaders who evangelized and touched other places besides where they originated from. The famous valleys of Piedmont and Angrona and others are places that you should visit. Most famous for Bible believers, true Bible believers. And we had following them one of the most famous of the Valdois. We have the Waldenses from Peter Waldo and the Paulinists and Bohemians and such as the Anabaptists. The Anabaptists are a really interesting group that have been disparaged even by Reformed people and some Reformed histories. It's really sad to see that many, it's, it's hard to give the actual number of these churches were true believers and they were ridiculed even by some of the Reformers that would become later. But to see how the Anabaptists suffered and other groups who were true to the biblical truth. So that's the backdrop to what was happening. We have true Bible believers. We not only have true Bible believers there, but in Northern Europe. We have in my own Ireland, Patrick in the fourth century, who comes with the gospel of grace. Read his testimony. It's all God's grace. And for 707 years after Patrick, we have biblical faith going out from Ireland and evangelizing and civilizing much of Europe and taking many of the churches that Rome was trying to manipulate, having true Bible believers right across Europe with the missionaries, the famous missionaries that went out from Ireland for 707 years after the great evangelist, Patrick. Most wonderful character and all the different men that followed him. It wasn't until 1171, finalizing 1172, by a pope getting together with a king that we had the devastation of the biblical faith in Ireland by military power to following by ecumenical imposition of the Roman Catholic system. With the Bible believers in the years of the Inquisition, there were also Jews, Muslims, Knights Templar, and those who were called witches, who were tortured and burnt at the stake. Children from above 12 years old could be tortured even to testify against their parents. The brutal tortures of taking out eyes, ears, pouring cauldrons of molten iron down people's throats and the different types of torture chairs and the different implements are unbelievable. We have produced a video called the, Inqu the Catholic Inquisition. We are showing in that video and DVD, which is about to be produced, these implements of torture. And I would really recommend that you look at that to see something of what Bible believers went through. Bob Jones University has produced The Flame and the Wind, which shows one side of the Inquisition in Spain and the tremendous faith of the believers and the horrendous torture and burning at the stake that Rome did. 
It is just great to see the text that the Bible believers held to, that God would not forsake them, and that he would never leave them, and that they were kept by the power of God, and other Bible texts that they held strongly to, and the Lord was with them. The stories and the historical accounts of the Bible believers standing strong under utter torture and burning at the stake is just a tremendous testimony to the biblical faith that existed in those horrific six centuries. And even before that, with such as John Huss was burned at the stake at the Council of Constance. The whole system is horrendous and even famous historians like Lord Acton call it the most deadly weapon that the popes have ever produced. It is what the popes are identified with, according to the Catholic historian Lord Acton. We have a huge turning point in history, and that was the Reformation. With this backdrop that there were some believers right across Europe and coming from Ireland and the Valdra reaching out to many different places and the Waldenses as did the Lollards from Britain and the Bohemians after John Huss. Besides all of that, that was not any huge movement. It was a loyalty to the faith. We had a huge turning point at the time of the Reformation whereby the Lord raised up men from within the Catholic Church to come out and to stand for biblical truth. The biggest revival that the Church has ever known, based on five biblical principles, that the only authority before the All-Holy God is the Bible, and one is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and to God alone be the glory. I quote from the Heroes of the Reformation by Gideon and Hilda Hagstads, published by Heartland Publications. The Reformation possessed definitive characteristics, many of which set it apart from any other revolution in history. At the time of the Reformation, Martin Luther posted 95 pieces on the church door in Wittenberg in 1517. John Colet, Dean of St. Paul's in England, was denouncing the abuses of the Catholic Church and upholding the supremacy of the Bible as a rule of faith. Lefebvre in France and Zwingli in Switzerland were at the same time preaching against the evils of the Church and pointing to Christ as the door of salvation. Although Luther is called the originator of the Reformation, other reformers discovered and preached the same message as he did without having received knowledge of it from him. This, however, could not have brought about the Reformation were not for the existence and progress made with the Holy Scriptures. The Greek New Testament prepared by Erasmus was a great help to scholars all over Europe, leading the way of truth and life. There was frequent interchange of ideas among the reformers. The Reformation actually began in Europe's citadels of learning her universities. As Luther, Melanchthon and Wittenberg, Erasmus and Colette at Oxford, Bilney, Latimer, Cartwright at Cambridge, Lefebvre and Farrell in Paris. 
And in some instances, Bees and Tyndale ranked high as men of letters. Others, Cranmer and Valdez, carried responsibilities at court. All the preaching of Luther's, Latimer's, Wingley's and Knox's would have accomplished little if not at the same time the vernacular translations of the Bible were not provided for the common people. If at the moment Latimer was preaching at Cambridge, it had not happened that Tyndale, who had fled to the continent, smuggled back thousands of copies of English New Testaments so that every Englishman could read the way of salvation for himself. There would not have been a Reformation in England. A similar situation occurred in Germany, France, and other places. With these two phases, there was an indispensable third, the invention of printing. Within a ten-year period, many nations of Europe received translations of the Bible in their own tongue. Luther translated for Germany in 1532, Lefebvre for France in 1523, Tyndale for England in 1525, and Bruzioli for Italy in 1532. The Reformation proper was a break with Roman Catholicism was remarkable because in a short period of time we had nations following on the principles set forth as the Bibles went forth and preaching went forth and nations now becoming nations of biblical faith that before had been Roman Catholic. The glorious Reformation was making inroads right across Europe. It is really sad that just a little bit after the dates that I've just given, where the Bible was translated for the first time in the mid-16th century in 1332 in Italy uh, and the other countries that I mentioned, it was just shortly after this that we had Ignatius of Loyola come on the scene. And Ignatius sets up the Jesuit order in 1334. Now from that time onwards, we have the Jesuits penetrating into all the nations that had become biblical through the Reformation. It is really sad to see the Counter-Reformation it was headed up principally by the Jesuits. Others were involved in it as well, but principally by the Jesuits. And really sad to see the intrigue where they inveigled their way into courts and palaces and overtook the faith of many kings so that they could change kingdoms and bring them back under Rome devastating nations that had been hit nicely and brought to biblical faith in some places like Poland, devastating it entirely, nearly wiping out the Reformation. It's really sad history in Hungary. You go to the square in Prague, in the modern um, day Czech Republic, and see the crosses on the square where the Famous reformers from all over Hungary were killed. It is most sad that that was typical of the counter-reformation of which the Jesuits were mostly responsible. And this counter-reformation goes on with Spain, Portugal, to 
to wipe out any influence coming in and to make them thoroughly Catholic nations. In France, they had difficulty because of the biblical influence, but they succeeded mightily. They extended even to Asia with the famous Francis Saviour going as far as nearly reaching China. Francis Saviour died just before reaching China, but having been to places like Japan. It is amazing to see how the Jesuits brought in Catholicism where Reformed faith had been. And they were the instigators as the Inquisition continued. Remember, the Inquisition did not stop until 1805 in different parts of Europe when the Jesuits were responsible still for Inquisition and torture. So we have the Jesuit influence coming here to the United States of America, principally in Michigan, and taking over the traders and bringing them under Catholicism and bringing towns and cities in Michigan under Jesuit and then papal authority. Somewhat the same down in Louisiana and Florida. And to this day in Michigan and in Florida and Louisiana, we still have the influence of the Jesuits, but they have permeated and come across all the states with their universities, with their intrigue, with their guile. So much so that the word Jesuit means crafty and is often used that way in the English language. It is really sad to see how this has been. We have definite lessons to learn from this period of history that the Catholic Church wants to appear as if she were Christian with the veneer of Christianity and to be recognized as Christian while she always persecutes true by believers if she is in power either by force of arms and civil authority or by intrigue. And she does it by forgeries, craft, persecution and a false gospel and her sacraments. It is really something we have to learn. If we are ignorant of history, we will be the people who repeat history. And it's really sad that very few people have any idea of the things that I've spoken about in this presentation. Christ Jesus saw that the gospel was what set people free and that people were freed to serve God in bodies of believers because he was their master. We had elders who worked under him. But the Roman church has always looked to itself as the authority and looked to itself as the one that would dictate. It was the popes that instigated the Inquisition and the torture and devised it. And it was they that sent out the decrees by which people were to be tortured. Christ Jesus said to the Pharisees, if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. 
To whom did those Pharisees look? They looked to Caiaphas, the high priest, and they trusted their traditions and they trusted the way they were taught by the traditions that were handed down to them rather than the written word of God. And Christ said, if you do not believe I am he, you will die in your sins. And with all love for Roman Catholics and praying for God's compassion for each one of them, we say to them that if you do not look to Christ and him alone and to the gospel by which you are set free, you will die in your sins. If you still look to the Pope in the same way as the Pharisees looked to Caiaphas as the one who dictates and not to Christ Jesus the Lord in his written word, you shall die in your sins. Now that is a strong word. This is just an overview of the history of the papacy from the beginning to the time of the Counter-Reformation. We pray to God that many would know this history would research it and would act on it to apply these principles to the present day. Praise God and bless his name. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. 
The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.